Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Well, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Glad you're listening. Summer's moving right along, and so is the podcast. Uh, We do interviews year-round, and this interview we did all the way back in November when we sat down with Brad Beal for an in-depth interview um, about a lot of stuff. Well, we, we start the interview with him growing up in Las Vegas in the late 60s and 70s, and then we shift gears. We talk about uh, B-52s, Air Force Survival School, and his time as a tail gunner in Vietnam. Uh, then we upshift, and Brad tells some of the stories about the very first days here at the Audubon Country Club and, and coming out when the track was just rock and run around on it for well i'm getting ahead of myself as i often do uh brad's one of the instructors here at the audubon country club uh he can be seen at the competition license school ladies day teen driving school and much much more uh he's a staple at the club since it first opened and we're lucky to have him and now we get to find out the rest of the story join us uh here on the podcast every other wednesday uh, send us questions or comments. You can reach us at podcast at audubonccc.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or have an interview idea, we'd love to hear it. Um, all quiet at the track this weekend. It's July 4th coming up, and uh, uh, 4th of July celebrations abound. Festival of Speed is coming up for July 17th and 19th with a lot of racing and activities. So I hope to see everybody out here at the track. That will be a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to it. And now, let's welcome Brad Beal to the Audubon Country Club Podcast. Say your name for me. Brad Beal. Welcome to the Audubon Country Club Podcast on a cold November. Yeah. Yeah, it Overcast. is cold. I'm used to that. My birthday is actually Wednesday. Oh. So this is the kind of weather it usually snows or does something nasty on my birthday. So I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> I supposedly, I was born in February, supposedly in a big snowstorm. There you go. So uh, where were you born? Speaking I was born in Joliet, actually. Oh. Close to here? I mean. Yeah. St. Joe's Hospital. Of course, the old St. Joe's, uh, the St. Joe's Hospital that exists now was not the one then. The one back then was right on the canal. It was... 68 years ago. <laughs> so that was a long time ago. It was, uh, yeah. Okay, so you were born, so you grew up around here? and I grew up, yeah, until I was um, about um, 12 years old. My parents got divorced and uh, moved to Las Vegas. So I lived for, I went to most of high school in Las Vegas. I lived there for almost five years. So what years did you go to Las Vegas? I mean, what years uh, was that? 1965 to 69. So what was going on? I mean, talk about a magical time. What was going on in Las Vegas? Yeah, at it that was t- different. It was different. I don't know. Are you a Vegas fan? Yeah, I, yeah, I happen yeah. to be. And actually, that I use Southwest Airlines ninety nine percent of the time. Thank you very. That's very cool. Um, yeah. Uh, it was different. I mean, but that was back when, uh, uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and all those yeah. guys were still around. The Rat Pack and all that stuff. So, so. I'm assuming that downtown was downtown, but right on the Strip there was the Flamingo. Yeah, there was a, the Flamingo, the Dunes. Um, Stardust, maybe? Stardust, uh, Frontier. Yeah, Frontier. Sahara. Yeah. They were all out there, you know. And um, So was now, your, did your mom move out there or your dad? My mom. What my did mom. she do out there? She actually got a job as a cashier at the Mint. 
the Mint Hotel, which was downtown. It's now the Horseshoe now has that whole block, but back then it was called the Mint. And it was actually, you could drive, you know, now it's a covered yeah, walkway, right. but that back then it was an actual road. So as a teenager, that's what we'd cruise. We'd cruise up and down Fremont Street, uh, where the Plaza Hotel is now. There was a train station there back in the day, and it was a big circle driveway. So that was where you turned around, and then you'd go back down to Las Vegas Boulevard South, which is a strip, and turn around down there. So that was it. That's that's what we. That's how we cruised. Pretty wild. Yeah. So I mean, I yeah, I just imagine it's a completely magical time there. It's, it was it's, way different. Yeah, way different. Um, it's it's grown so much now, and uh, it's gotten so weird. I mean, you know, back then uh, the strip, most of the hotels on the strip were way off. You know, like right now they're all right there, so you can walk to them. Yeah. But like the frontier, the uh, the uh, Flamingo, all those were, were back off. A lot of them, you couldn't even see the hotels. They weren't huge 40-story skyscrapers like they are today. Right, they were kind of... Like more like motels back, you know, two or three stories yeah. high. Basically. You you know, like, for example, the Tropicana, there was palm trees going to it. You couldn't even see it from the street. Oh, really? Back in the day, yeah, so it was different. Did you guys ever go down? Did you do? Did you go see any of the shows or do any of those things? No, I was younger. I couldn't get in any, you know, back then. You, you couldn't even go into a casino if you weren't 21. Oh. You had to sit outside, so you couldn't even do any of that. Uh, me and my friends would try and um, sneak into the pools and go swimming, you know, in different pools and stuff, which, you know, they were not, it, was, it wasn't, they were all, weren't all fenced in and stuff like that. They were pretty much open, and you could walk around pretty much, and you couldn't go inside, but you could walk around, go through the pools and stuff. So it was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. I mean, I had a, I grew up there, and I, you know, I, I had a lot of friends, and I had a good time. The four and a half, five years or so I lived there was a pretty good time in my life. It was fun. So what you? So how old were you when you? So then you moved back here. Moved back here when I was seventeen. So I finished high school here, so to speak, and um, started working. You know, and I worked at a factory, and then I got my draft notice. So I was drafted. I joined the Air Force. Before, the, so you got your draft notice, and then joined the Air right, Force. Right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. So my, you could do that. You could, okay. uh, as long as you you went into the military at some point. Uh, the the army gave me eleven days to report, which kind of sucked. You know, I had a job and I had a, a I was sharing an apartment with a buddy of mine, and and um, I you know wasn't prepared to go into the military. So I went into the back then when you went into uh, the post office, all the recruiters were there. You know, oh. so the Air Force was the first first door, so that was the first place I went, and he gave me a delayed enlistment thirty days. So I thought, you know, that's. That's a deal. Eleven days is for thirty days. So, so I joined <laughs> the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So I right. joined joined the Air Force, and then I. Uh, then what year was this? Uh, that was nineteen seventy one. Vietnam was going strong. Vietnam was going strong, yeah. and uh, I joined the Air Force. And when I took the test, I uh, did well in, under electronics, which is kind of what I dabbled in. I used to repair TVs and crap. You know, that was what I did. And um, so uh, when I went in there, I. I, uh, you know, the Army or the Air Force or whatever, military service, you know, you, you take a test and you, and when you, when you go into boot camp, they, they give you a list of stuff based on how you did test-wise. And I did good under electronics, so um, I was looking for stuff, you know, they, had, they give you a list, maybe there's uh, three dozen things that the Air Force needs that particular month. So where'd you go to boot camp? Jobsville, uh, Lackland Air San, Force Base, San Antonio, San Antonio yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, I picked fire defensive fire control operator, which was a flying job, and uh, 
because I, I I asked the guy, I says, what is what is this? It looked, yeah, what is it? Yeah. And, and he said, I don't know, but you'll be on flying status. I said, okay, sign me up. You know, I mean, only 2% of the people in the Air Force have anything to do with airplanes. That's something I found out. Hmm. Something our... Uh, 2%? Yeah. That's something our... Um, our uh, uh, TI, you know, our, our training instructor yeah. said, you know, and you, none of you maggots are going to, you know, they're not going to allow any of you guys anywhere near an airplane, that type of thing. <clears throat> so I signed up for that, and I didn't know what it was until I went to survival school, which was in Spokane, Washington, which made boot camp, you know, that was a summer camp compared to survival school. And uh, it was a defense fire control operator. It was a B-52 gunner, basically. Oh. So fire control, meaning firing, Machine shooting gun a fire. gun, yeah, exactly. not firefighting. Exactly. Uh, Had me fooled. I thought, oh, okay, I'll be like flying around looking for forest fires or whatever, you know. So you go to basic basic training, and then they say, congratulations, you're going to Spokane. Yep. And you're like, you still at this? Well, I didn't. When I was in, when I get when I get done with with uh, with boot camp, um, we they took us, they put us, some of us into a part of of Lackland called casual, which, you know, you're waiting for your orders, basically. So they had, they only did these, they only did this survival school training twice a year, because it was like a, this whole, this whole thing was, um, it's like a six month long thing, you know, training was, took six months. So survival school was a couple, three weeks, and then you had about five and a half, six months of training. So they only had two schools a year, so they had to wait I had to wait there for two or three weeks before we had a full class, I guess. Oh, so, when so they what sent, time of year did you go? I went up there, it was in July, actually July 4th. Oh, paradise. Well, it I wasn't went, bad. I it went the bad. first week of March. When where? To Spokane, the well, first week of okay, March. Okay, so it, well, it was not, it was a little cold. Yeah, okay. What'd you do up there? What'd you do up there? Well, I flew 23 years in the Air Force. Okay. Oh, so I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Okay. So I went up there for, so you've been up there. For survival school. Walk. I walked. You probably had shorts on. I walked in thigh deep snow. So now I'm wondering, no, what years did you go? I, I went to survival school in '91. Okay, I wonder how much different it was. Did they stick you out in the field and you had to do all this stuff? Okay, so you're familiar with what? Killed the rabbit. Did you kill the rabbit? Did you have a rabbit? No. That was, we, the, big, that was the big. They made the city kids kill the rabbit. They ate the <laughs> rabbit, but the city kids had to kill it. We didn't. They didn't give us anything. We had to catch our own. We had to catch our own stuff. We yeah. had to catch our own stuff. Yeah, they gave us. Uh, you know, you had your parachute. We, you know, I made we, I made a lean to, and then we had we made a canteen, and they gave us iodine tablets. You know, to throw in there to get water out of the creek, all that stuff. And it was, uh, and then we had to hike, and then we got captured. Now, did they capture you at yeah. the end? Yeah. Okay. So you're so you're kind of familiar with all the stuff. Yeah. Went yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. That was an interesting. Thing. I literally had a ball and chain on my leg. Really? I had escaped. Long story. But I escaped. <laughs> And when they brought me back, they actually put a ball and chain on no, my leg. No kidding. Yes. That's pretty funny. <laughs> All right. So you understand that whole thing. I mean, that was that was uh, that was an interesting. So I, now I liked the part of it. I mean, the part where we had um, in the classroom where they talked about what you can eat and you know how to escape and evade and all that stuff. That was it. That was good. That was interesting. And I wish I knew that when I was a teenager. You know. <laughs> but. But back then it wasn't it wasn't that much fun, as you know. It wasn't. Did they teach you the tap code back then? Is it was that? No. I didn't know when that came out because that might have came out. That came out from Vietnam, because when you're doing when you're doing um, Morse code, you get you you get a. Okay. So what's your tap, and you can't tell if that's a pause or a long tap. Oh, right, right. So you don't know if it's a long or short. So the tap code was. 
A, B, C, D across, E, E, and F down. And it was like one tap was across, two taps was down. Oh, gotcha. So you had that chart. So no, no, we didn't go through you, that. You could talk to – that came out probably, I'm going to guess, from like the Hanoi Hilton or something like yeah, that. Yeah, probably. But um, – probably. So what kind of did you get? How much did you catch? Did you guys catch enough food? To- we caught caught a couple fish, and, and then I had my rations, and then we made beef jerky too. Oh, you made. We beef actually jerky. made beef jerky. We smoked it and stuff, which was nice, and that that helped, you know, because when we were trekking the next day, um, you know, I I chew on that beef jerky for quite a bit. I ran across. It was pretty funny. Um, I don't, you know, we were. I don't, I'm not sure where at where we were. We we're hiking through this stuff. And we had there was a bunch, of, and I found a, a patch of wild strawberries on top of a hill. And they were actually cold. It was kind of, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm um, trying to think temperature-wise, I mean. Well, you're probably at eight, eight 9,000 feet, I would guess. Yeah, it was least, pretty, it was pretty, pretty high, high up, but it Spokane's wasn't. Spokane's at two. It was cold at night. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, yeah, but, but in the day, well, but anyway, I, I ate a bunch of these strawberries and I thought, man, I'm, I, I was thinking I was going to get sick, but I didn't, you know, and it, it, it was, it was, uh, it was different. It was, it was a cool, uh, it was a cool thing. I'm glad I went through, but, um. It wasn't very much fun at the time. I'm sure you can relate to that. I didn't like, and being an outdoors guy, I did not like the camping part. Camping, in <laughs> air quotes, right? I didn't like this that part, honestly. Um, but I did the resistance training when they, when they, you know, teach you the prisoner of war stuff. Right. It was a met, such a mental game to me. I actually liked that. As crazy and insane as that sounds, um, you know, most people were not into into that but uh i i actually like that part i thought that was challenging those guys um did they still have the let bicons be bicons on the on the thing there see they had in front of the building they had this thing we first got there uh we got there the weekend of the fourth of july so we had nothing to do but walk around the base and check it out and see where the mess hall was and all the important stuff right and on the front of this building it said let bicons be bicons and it didn't make a lot of sense to me but that was one of the things now when did you get interrogated? Oh yeah. Okay, so when I got interrogated, they were they were these guys were like, I guess they were. It looked to, it seemed to me they were like like Cubans. Yeah. They were like they were like dressed like communist Cubans yeah. or whatever yeah. you know some yeah. some some Central America right. something right, and so uh, big thick heavy accents and stuff. Anyway, they were good, and so the 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 morning that we were all done, we let they let us loose. We went to the mess hall where, you know, we'd been three or four days without a shower, didn't have anything to eat, you know, that type of stuff. So we were all dead, me and my buddies. So I'm in line, and one of these guys is there, and I went up to him and said, dude, you guys are good, you know, that's, you guys are really good at what you do. And he just looked at me like he wanted to kill me. Even, it didn't, didn't break character. I mean, he's in the mess hall, it's all over, it's done, and he, he was not, he was the most unfriendly guy like uh, I just wanted to, you know, I, thanks for the training. I wanted to thank yeah, him, right? I mean, the they, those, those guys, my life. Those guys right? did a good job, right? right? Yeah, and right. he just looked at me like he wanted to punch me. It's like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> you know, it was pretty wild. My, 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 <laughs> my story was we, you know, there's certain things, certain goals that you have to achieve, and there, and the one of the head dudes was, you know, just yelling at me, you know, push-ups, blah blah blah, lay on the cold. I knew, I knew that if you stopped shivering, that you were hypothermic. So I mean, I wasn't there minutes, and I was completely stripped on land on this concrete floor. All I was trying to do was to stop shivering because I knew they'd let me up at that point, and I could not stop <laughs> shivering. 
Anyway, so we were going on, and I remember I turned to him, and I did not know what he wanted me to do because he was literally coaching me without coaching me. And I turned to him, and I said, I don't understand. Just give me a hint. And he did not take well. He did not take well to me. He didn't break, you know, he did not take well to that. Yeah. Off with your clothes in the cage or squirting you with water. They put you in the box, the box. Oh, the boxes. Oh, yeah. 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 That was interesting. It's like, holy crap. And I don't have no idea how long I was in there. I mean, oh I yeah, Slept, you get sleep deprivation. Yeah, yeah and it was music it was a, and it was a whole yeah. It was. <laughs> I tell people about that. I think, you know, your own country did this to you. Yeah, they actually did that. You know, so it was pretty. But again, it was something that, you know, I mean, it was something you needed to know, right? It was something you needed right? to learn. Something that you know m- might have come in handy if I got shot down somewhere. You know, so that was. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah, I I would have. There's that they called it advanced beatings. Was the next. There was another level, another course, and and I'm not sure who exactly got to go to that, but I always wanted to go. Yeah, I always wanted to. Yeah, well, I was done. When, when, <laughs> when was by enough? the time by the time I got out of there, I was happy to get out of there. So we went down to Castle Air Force Base, and that's where my training was. And that's in um, Merced, uh, uh, California, right? Merced, yeah, yeah, yeah. So B fifty two at the time, you were sitting in the tail. In the tail. Mm. The ones the ones they flew overseas, well, they had G models, which the G models were, um, it was the first model where they moved the gunner up front. They still had the 450 cal mm-hmm. turret, you know. And But no, the, I, I was in H models, which were the, um, the Vulcan cannons. In the back. In the back, but I sat up front. But all the, all the ones I flew overseas, you know, in Southeast Asia were D models, which were, I sat in a tail. Okay, so you show up to the B-52, and they say, climb in the tail, mm-hmm. and you start to finish. You're in the tail, right? right. You're not walking. You can't go back and forth. I did twice. Yeah, I did. I had to do that. I had to do an emergency crawl through twice. I flew 52 missions, so there's two different times that I had to crawl through. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a close-up. Have you ever seen a B-52 close-up? Like through the Bombay and stuff, there's a walkway that's literally they call it a walkway. Not no, I cannot it's about that wide. This, no, it's about that wide. It's it goes along, you know. There's there's different things. You know, the tail compartment obviously is pressurized, and but but that's it. So the between the tail compartment and the crew compartment, there's no pressurization. Or the Bombay. So is. I have to go through the aft wheel well. Now the wheels in the B fifty two go up like that. So Crisscross. They, well, they, they go up, yeah, they go up kind of, the right one ends up left and the left one ends up right. And so the wheels, you know, the curve of the tire goes up over that walkway. I weighed probably 98 pounds soaking wet back then, and I could barely get through there. So they had some pretty good-sized gunners. I wasn't one. You're supposed to go through with your parachute on, no freaking way. And you're supposed to carry, they had, we had these green oxygen bottles. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to carry that with you. No, there's no way. There's no way you could do that. And so... So you go through the aft wheel well, then you go through what they call the, well, you go through the 47 section. It's called the 47 section, which is where all the the, um, the oxygen uh, generators, if you want to call them that, uh, the, the, um, the um, hydraulic packs, all that stuff is in the 47 section. And you can stand up in there. It's huge. And so you walk through there, and there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a hole on the floor. Uh, uh, you know that you don't want to step on it's latch but you don't want to step <laughs> on that when you're 30,000 feet or whatever so and then you go through the aft wheel well and then you go through the there's two bomb bays there's an aft bomb bay and a forward bomb bay and of course there's a rib uh, structural rib that 
that you have to climb around or go through to get through there. You know, it was it was a pain. It was a pain. And then uh, then you get to the you go through the forward wheel well, and then you're in the crew compartment. And so uh, I did it twice. One time I did it because uh, my my aft went full hot. We get we get bleed air from the engines to to heat it right. And uh, there's a little valve, and if that valve doesn't shut off, it gets. I mean, it's so hot you're. You, you burn yourself on the Yeah, metal. it's 613 degrees coming out yeah. of the turbine, I think. It's, it's the hot back there. And the other one now. was I lost pressure. Uh, and I noticed, you know, my ears were popping. We had just released the bombs, and we were, we were going what we call feet wet. We are out, you know, going over the off the coast. And and I noticed my cabin pressure was climbing. And then the co-pilot gets a indication. I went up to, like, 24,000 feet. So I had to get on, you know, obviously I had to get on oxygen stuff. So... Uh, for for me to crawl through, we had to go back below ten, so I could go off oxygen and all that stuff. Sure, so, yeah, yeah. So we so we went down. Then I so I, the second time I went through, they timed me. I think I made it in like under two minutes. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> and so there's I say there's uh, two pilots, navigator. Uh, there's there's and, a, it's a, and an engineer six man crew. So there's a pilot co-pilot. There's a. a Bombardier, Bombardier, radar navigator, technically. Okay. Bombardier and a navigator, then an EWO officer, electronics warfare officer. That's right, that's right. And then we, we're the, me and him are the defense, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the first, and so when you would get, how do you get in? So it's on the ground. You climb in this on the ground, Yeah, right? there's, a, there's a stand, you know, one of those yellow stands. You climb in there, and then you pull the door shut. Your, your seat is laid back. You go over your seat, and then you pull the back up behind you and strap in. And so the first time you take off... You climb in this thing. It was weird. And you're sitting backwards. Backwards. And this thing's hustling down the runway, loud. Loud, bumpy. And you take off, and you're just looking down, going, "Yeah, yeah. This I had to have 500 feet to bail out." So the the guys in the front eject down. Well, the guys, the pilot, co-pilot eject up, but the guys below below deck. There's two decks, right? Oh. The radar okay. navigator, navigator eject, eject down. They yeah. Eject down. And they needed 500 feet also. And. And did you eject down too? No, no ejection seat for me. You just bailed out. I I blow the back of the plane off. I had a, a handle with everything. Uh, I had a scope, right, and all my electronic stuff, and then the turret's quite a ways behind me yet, you know. And so um, when I if I blow the handle, everything from my scope goes goes away. It's you know I don't know it's twelve thousand pounds or whatever the hell it weighs. I forget. And it's cause so um, and there's a there's a thing in the in the book that my pilot would read and. It's um, you know, you lose you lose twelve, fifteen thousand pounds for the back of the airplane. It's going to cause you know sure it's cause the a, center of gravity right. issues. It's, right, I didn't think of that. Yeah. yeah. So so what I'd have to do then is is basically grab the edges of the opening and pull myself out. Did did you tether? Were you tethered? Did you te- like your well, shoot? Were we, you tethered? Or it depends. It, it? it depends on how high we were. We had what we call zero delay lanyards. So above ten thousand feet, we'd stow those because you wouldn't want to. Right, you wouldn't want to pull them out there because right. you'd freeze to death, right, or run out of oxygen before right. you hit the ground. Exactly. So I, it was, which was, you know, as long as you're in level flight, that's cool. But if you're in a nosedive, right, there's no freaking way I'm going to be able to pull myself out of there. You know. So anyway, I never had to do that, thankfully. And how many? In, in what kind of fifty cals in the back? Yeah, four fifties. How how much ammunition? Um, we had roughly. I don't remember. And I remember on the, um, the H model, we had, um, I think it was 11,000 11, rounds or something. We had like four seconds of ammunition. 
Right, not very Something long. Like yeah, that. I mean, just cra- crazy to think four yeah. seconds. Yeah, because we had we had it just well, it was more than four, it was like twenty four seconds, but we had four second bursts. Yeah, yeah, not okay, so when yeah, I yeah, when yeah, I yeah. squeeze the trigger, it would automatically stop, stop. at four seconds because it melt. Yeah, it could melt the and gun and everything it's, else. Uh, I think what eight hundred fifty rounds or something like that. You know, and, and so you're. I mean, to think of a MiG-15 rolling in behind you, and you're how are you aiming this stuff? Well, radar. You could aim it by you could aim it visually if you if your radar was gone. But we had radar. We could lock on. The thing is, we you know because we're shooting backwards, we had you know we had a lot bigger range. They're shooting into the wind. We're shooting a we're shooting right. A, sure, so, sure. Okay. So we could right. we could I could lock them up. <clears throat> Supposedly a couple thousand yards before they could lock me up. Supposedly that was the deal. That was what they told us anyway. And there was a there was a couple of guys. I mean, uh, I think B fifty two's are credited with three or four MIG kills. So over so, Hanoi. And where did you base out of? Were you? Well, I was spent. I did two tours. Uh, There's two two bases that were active. Then was Guam, uh, Anderson Air Force Base on Guam, and then Utapau in in Thailand. Which did you like better? Oh, I like you to pop Are you kidding me? Oh man, <laughs> Thailand was nice. You know, Guam is about eleven miles long and maybe four miles wide. I've been to Guam, and I mean it's a it's a nice tropical yeah. island, but there's not anything to do there. There's nothing to do. I mean, it, it, you know, if you want to get a suntan and lay in the sun, that was that was nice, and it rained every day. You know, even for if maybe just thirty seconds, but it would rain every day. That's why it's a tropical island, right? But but Thailand was a lot a lot more fun because there was a lot more. I could t- catch a bus and go to Bangkok. Which you know was wow. a pretty, pretty cool thing to do, and um, and because I was in flying status, I could hitch a ride. I could ride anything that that was. Available. Did you have a party flight suit that I've I've seen those all those flyers with these party flights? Well, suits, they, those fancy it, ones that you go to parties. Well, with? they did, but we didn't. You know, we, during the war, there was none of that stuff going on. Oh, okay. okay. There, no, there was no party. <laughs> did, there was partying, but you had to you did that on your own. You <laughs> okay. Know? All right. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, Thailand was fun. I mean, that was a great place to hang. You know, I had a lot of fun there and. And 57 missions, you said? 52. 52 combat missions. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was there for about a little over nine months. So I did I did a tour, came home, got married, and then went back over for another tour. So I was there, you know, about four and a half months each, each tour, roughly. So it was an interesting year. Wow. How far, how, how, how far... Inland, did you go? What did you say north? How far north did you go? Um, did you just, go all the way to Hanoi? No, I didn't. I wasn't part of the Hanoi. I just missed that, thankfully. And I just missed it by literally like a week, because we were in, we were going through RTU. We were, we were back at Castle, going through there um, during the, all the Christmas bombing. I got over there like the, the th- fourth or fifth of January, so they had stopped it just barely, you know. So uh, I went a little north of the DMZ, not not too far north. We were doing most of our bombing around the DMZ and a little south of the DMZ because everything, you know, by that time the Arvin had, you know, pretty much penetrated. The, the war was winding down at that point pretty much. Wow. So, and it didn't. Um, we stopped, when we stopped running, when we stopped doing bombing missions, we started doing training flights. So we're flying low level over the ocean, which isn't a really good idea for, you know, for salt and all that stuff. And, and you know we're you know I, we would fly low level when we did our nuclear alerts here in the United States, uh, all the training was low level. You know we go we do the we do air refuel we do a, you know a nav leg and all that stuff, 
maybe even a fighter intercept exercise where they'd have, they'd send uh, National Guard guys up to chase us, and you know I'd lock onto them, and we'd do, we'd play that game, but we go low level because all the bombing we'd do if we didn't do any nuclear bombing it was all low level. You know that, right? Yeah. 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 So, so we practiced low level. So that was fun. So where were you based when you came back afterwards? Where I was up at Wordsmith, which is uh, um, if this is Michigan, it was like right about there. So. So about about fifty miles south of uh, the, um, the Upper Peninsula. Upper Peninsula, yeah, yeah on the on the stump Lake, side, Lake Huron, east side, Lake Huron side, yeah, yeah, east side. Yeah, so I don't think. Yeah, that B fifty two. What's eighty years next year? I think yeah. it's been fine. Eighty years. Yeah. And no, no end in sight. No, twenty five more years. They're talking. They're talking about putting new engines on them now. They're talking about. I guess they're talking to. I don't know if it's Rolls Royce. They're talking to somebody about put new engines on. I mean, they've, they've increased the avionics. Even when I was in, every year they'd come up with, we had low light, we got the low light TVs, and we got um, trams, which were the, um, trams stood for uh, short range, or was it, yeah, short range attack missile, right? So it was, uh, these were literally, it was a rotary launcher that sat in a bomb bay, and they would rotor, you know, you drop in. So we had, we'd carry, instead of, the, instead of conventional nuclear weapons, which were huge, these were condensed down. So we had f- anywhere from four to six of them on board. And usually we'd have one or two that we could program. So if, so if we're flying into Russia, let's say, and I probably shouldn't, I don't know if I should be saying this or not. <laughs> I, don't think it's, I don't think it's classified anymore. But we're, we're flying into Russia. Well, yeah, don't say anything classified. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and there, like say there was an air base that wasn't supposed to be there, but it was still there, that we could take it out then. We could program, we could, you know. Yeah, so. Target of opportunity, basically. Yeah. So we had four. Tactical were, as yeah. opposed to intercontinental. Right. Yeah, tactical we, type we, stuff. We'd yeah. have four that were pre-programmed for whatever, you know, mission. And then you would, you would set and the target. And we'd have one or two yeah. that we could target ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So it was Yeah, the only nuclear stuff I did was in, I flew, um, in F-16 training at McDill in, in Tampa. We'd go out and we'd, we'd, we'd launch, you know, they were just training 30-pound uh, little dummy bombs. We'd launch them 10 miles. Yeah. You know, we'd pull up, be screaming almost the speed of sound, wrench up halfway up the pull-up, you know, you'd sling Let the bomb off. Yeah. And by the time you were supposed to hit the ground and, and go away from the nuclear bomb as fast yeah. as, you know, yeah. the speed of sound yeah. as the thing went bang. Well, it's the same, yeah, same with us. We would, when we would drop it, they were all fused, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't detonate right away, so we'd, we'd have a escape route that we could supposedly get far enough away, and they had it all worked out. They had safe, you know, safe areas um, that we, you know, we would bail out. Like, for example, if we had to bail out over Russia, I'm the first guy out of the airplane, theoretically. So if we're going out of country, um... Um, the pilot would be the last guy out, so we ever, so he would stay put, and we'd all we'd all go to him. Oh, right. Sure. If we're going in country, I would be the first guy out. Let's say if we're going in country, I'm the first guy out, so I'm the farthest away from well, the target. So they all come, so to, they you. All come sure, to me, sure. you know. So all, all <coughs> yeah. that stuff. they had it all figured out. They had, um, you know, this area where there's there are friendly people that would supposedly take us in and feed us something. And yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that would happen. <laughs> you know, so. And our, our, our post-strike base, if we couldn't get back to, uh, to the U.S., was Tehran in Iran. Wow. That's back when the Shah was there. Yeah. They were our friends back yeah. then, right? So lots of changed. Lots of things have changed. So. 
spent a lot of time on alert. Um, you know, now I think there's only I think there's only one or two bases where B-52s are even located. Now they've shut down most of the SAC bases. Yeah, I know Barksdale. That's still the the main one. That's the main training one down in Louisiana for B-52s. And yeah. I can't tell you. You know, I've been retired for six years now, so I can't even tell you where the other one was. Um, I know up in North Dakota they had uh, Minot. Yeah, it's, was it's it? the last one that had B-52s. Yeah, I think so. That's the last I. Yeah, heard. I don't know. I can't tell B-1's you now. up there now. I think. I said. You know, back in the day, I could tell you every base and what plane they had at every base all over the world. Yeah. You know, what kind of planes. But yeah, yeah. Not anymore. So how long are you totally where you in? Four years. Four years? Mm-hmm. So you come back to... Where, where was your wife while you were gone? Did she? Well, when she, she she stayed with her parents. In Joliet? Went, she from Joliet? Yeah, she yeah, Lockport. Lockport. And then so uh, she stayed with her parents. And then when, when I got back, then we, we got a, bought a trailer off base. And, you know, so we lived off base up in Smith, so, for a couple of years. And then I got out and moved back to to the Joliet area and started working and started having kids. And, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, you're a, a B-52 tail gunner when they set in the tail. Yeah. You, uh, Dying breed. There's no more of that. Uh, no more, right? That's... Uh, Big cojones, I think, is how I could say that well, on the podcast, right? It was, it was interesting. It was interesting, yeah. Yeah, now they don't even have guns anymore. They took the guns off them completely. So they just figured, you know, and and uh, uh, I guess they figured, that, you know, you really don't need them because if you're, I don't know, I guess they just figured there's... Yeah, you they haven't been. So them. in my pilot training class in 1990, uh, Buzz Yateman was a... Um, he was a B-52 gunner and got commissioned and went to... And he ended What's up his last name? Yate. Buzz Yateman. Yateman. He would have been a... Oh, he was 24 in 1990-ish, oh, okay. something like that. Right, so, so, and he um, he went on, I think, to be a KC-10 pilot. But he's the only guy, speaking of, of survival school, he, did on, he was the second guy. So we had a navigator who was our chief ranking officer. He was navigator on um, C-130s, he had been to, I take that back, there was three guys that went to survival survival school. So we had a navigator, we had an F-4 navigator, and we had him that had went to survival school. And he was always talking about how he could eat anything. Anything, you can eat anything, you can survive on anything. I've been to survival school, he's always telling us that. I could survive, so we were always challenged, we eat something. And I remember we went to look at the T-38, so we flew T-37s first, went to the T-38s, and we were walking around the hangar, and there was a moth the size of my thumb flapping in hydraulic fluid. And we go, hey, Buzz, eat that. You'll eat anything. Eat that. You could live off that. That's really? a lot of protein. Eat that. And he goes, I'll eat it for 20 bucks. And I said, I got a buck. So we came up with $3. <laughs> and he goes, I go, eat it for 3 bucks." So he picked it up. And here's a point for all the kids listening. If you're going to eat something with wings... Take, the, Take wings. the wings off. <laughs> exactly right. Take the wings yeah. off first. Because he picked that moth up, and he and he and when he put it in his mouth, the wings just went out. Uh-huh. And it stuck halfway in his throat, halfway in his mouth. And when you talk about a person changing colors, I'd never seen anybody really change, go turn green. And yeah. he turned green. And he <laughs> couldn't chew because it was too far back. Oh, he couldn't yeah. get it to yeah. chew. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget that. It's gross now, yeah. and I think about it, but we... 
kids, you know, we yeah. were dying laughing. I, I mean, bet. we were just, it was, it was the I funniest bet. thing we'd ever seen. He yeah. got it down. Did he? And he got us three bucks. Yeah, I don't know. Hope it was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't, you know, they're, I mean, they taught, you know, they, they taught us how to, you know, catch, you know, bugs stew, they caught, you know, all that stuff, you know, bugs are really nutritious, yeah. you know, protein, all that stuff. And I thought, now I'll stick with berries, to be honest with you. And yeah, when I found those strawberries, I thought, oh man, I've, I've lucked out here. But my rations, I mean, I had one can of rations, I think I went through those, you know, maybe half the first day, those were gone, <laughs> you know, so... But I tell you what, the, the coffee was good, and I had a chocolate bar in mine uh-huh. that was excellent. Some of the best chocolate, I don't know if it was just me, could, right. uh, but it was some of the best chocolate I've ever had. It was really good. So those are the times, I tell you. I met some good friends there, though. One of the guys I still talk to to this day is a buddy of mine who lives in Philadelphia. Oh, awesome. We went through all that crap together, so yeah. So how did you get into cars? Well, I was always into cars. I mean, I did some drag racing when I was a teenager. Oh, really? Uh, out in Las Vegas? No. Well, when I came back here. Came back here? Yeah, because I wasn't old enough to drive then. Although I learned how to ride a motorcycle there. You only had to be 14 to have a motorcycle license. Oh. So I learned all the uh, shifting gears, negotiating traffic, and all that as a 14-year-old on a motorcycle. So, wow. Yeah. So so um, when I got back into, into Joliet, Lockport, and uh, started working and, and bought myself a car and stuff, I had a buddy of mine that had a 68 GTO, and we, we took it to Oswego, drag strip. There used to be a drag strip there. There mm-hmm. isn't anymore, and we we raced it and, and uh, you know won a couple trophies and stuff. So I was always interested in in cars. Um, you know, I was just uh, you know once I got married, started having kids, that kind of put the damper on that. And the story I tell though that what happened to me was, and I don't know how this happened, but somehow some way I got put on some BMW list, and I got a notice that there was going to be a uh, uh, autocross up at Arlington Racetrack in up in, you know, the horse race track up in oh, Arlington yeah. Park. And it was on a Saturday, and I thought, eh. I had a couple young kids back then. I forget how old I was. I don't know. But anyway, I thought, uh, I'm going to go up there and check it out. Well, they were doing an autocross, just like we do here. Sure. There was four BMWs, four instructors, and there was 12 of us, three three, mm-hmm. three guys in each car, right? And so, um, and, you know, Tony Kester, to give him a shout-out, he, he always likes to say there's three things all men think they can do well, right? Shoot a gun. Uh, drive a car and sex, right? And you, and no man can do any of them without a lot of the training, supposedly. <laughs> so anyway, so and I had two I had two marksmanship medals from the Air Force. I had mm-hmm. a, a marksmanship with a with a M, M16 and a 38, right? So I was always a pretty good shot. So anyway, so I'm doing this thing, and I was by far the fastest guy there, as far as being able to go through the mm-hmm. autocross. And I didn't have that much experience at that. I just said I was, you know, I think I think. Some people naturally have the have the ability, and some people don't. Some people can learn it, but you almost have to have some sort of a natural ability to be able to do it well, right? And so anyway, so um, I was by far the fastest of all the 12, 12 other people that were there, and I was only about a, a, a second or so under what these instructors were doing. So I thought, I can do this, you know, and so... Uh, long story, and that, that, was a, that was like another decade before I actually had a chance to... Um, to go up to a driving school up at Road America, uh, it was called Lap Times, I think, or Lap something. And I, you know, I, we had the BMW Z3s up there, and there was about twenty-five of us. And at the end of the day, only they only let four of us go on the track by, our, by ourselves without an instructor. And so I was, you know, I was into it. I was just, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I was just something I always wanted to do. So when this place was being built, um, I had to, I had to join. I mean. It's 15 minutes from my house, you know. <laughs> and so I remember when I called, um, 
when I was a I was a member. I bought I bought a BMW because I was so impressed with okay. what they. So I was a member of the Windy City BMW Club, and in their in their newsletter they had a big full page advertisement for the Autobahn. This had been right at the beginning. This is before they. This is two thousand two. Okay. Two thousand three. Very early on. Very early on, and and they hadn't, and so I it, they almost made it sound like this track existed somewhere. So I'm thinking, I got to find out where where is this racetrack? You know, in the Chicago area, I don't know anything about it. I got to find out what this was going on here. So I think I called I called Mark Basso one day because um, there was a number on there. It was and Mark answered. And I said, you know, he says, yeah, we're we're doing this thing and we're doing it. We're going to do it in the Joliet area and. I'm thinking, okay, you know, and it wasn't done yet. It wasn't even. I think they. I think they'd. They'd figured out where they wanted to do it, but nothing had been done yet. So Mark says, "Yeah, if you want to come out and see it, you know, I we got a, a four wheeler out there. We can take you and show you around and stuff." And then they had a. They had a. Um, some sort of a, a big uh, get together at a hotel in Downers Grove. I don't remember what hotel it was, but there was a bunch of us there. I met a bunch of guys there, and this was. Uh, they were pitching it right. And um, I even won. They were giving away stuff. I even won a, a metal model car there that day. And so I met a bunch of different guys, and we were talking about it. And, and it was still just kind of a concept. You know, nobody was really sure what was going to happen. And then, I don't know, about a month or two later, they had a thing out, out here out in the parking lot um, right next to, well, pretty much where the main gate is now. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a two-lane road back then. There was houses and stuff. It was, way, it was, out, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, there, there were was, houses here. Oh, yeah. There was oh. a, there was a, there was farmhouses. It was a two lane road, hmm. back back then, and, and they had a little gravel, um, like a, they threw a bunch of gravel down. They had a tent up, and they had the property staked out. They had the track staked out where the track was going to be and stuff. And so I talked about you know I talked to some people, and that's the day, that's when I joined. So I joined before they ever oh, wow. they ever actually, um, you know they hadn't really broken ground oh, yet. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, you were in. I, I was in. I'm all in. I was in. I, uh, <laughs> they, the, what they were talking about, I thought, you know, I was, in, I, I liked racing, and I liked to, you know, I thought the idea of having a racetrack that I could, that I could come to in my neighborhood, you know. Wow. Yeah. Because I'm only, like I say, 20, 15, 20 minutes away. So I joined, and then of course I had to buy a car. So I, I bought an old Porsche 911. I found. And then the first day, I think I told you this before, the first day the track was supposed to open in 2004, but it was a really rainy spring, and so the, the construction didn't go real well. So they finally got, by the time everything was ready to open and everything was paved and we could drive on it, was like the first weekend of October, mm-hmm. or sometime in October, maybe not the first, but it was sometime in October. So they said, okay, you can come for, like, we're going to open a track for a weekend before we close it down for the winter. Yeah, because there's some charter. They had to get on the track this year or something. Fulfill, something. Yeah, there was some something. Fulfill zoning or something yeah, like that, right? something like that, right. And so we got to drive on the track for that weekend. And, like, I, and, and uh, so I went up to Mark, and I met, you know, I talked to Mark a couple times, and I said, you know, is there anything I can do? And he said, yeah, we could take some people for rides. You know, I said, sure. So I started taking people for rides, and, I took Mike Gritter for his first ride. I oh, think yeah. I told you that. And I didn't know, you know, he was, I thought he was just here as a normal Joe like I was. I didn't right. realize he was looking for a job. So yeah. I, I actually took him a ride for a ride around the track. And then, in, in fact, I've got the picture. If you went on the, um, the website for the first two or three years, if you got on the um, Autobahn website, it was a picture of my Porsche on the south track in the rain because oh, it yeah. rained that weekend. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was cool. yeah. So, 
So that's kind of it. So then I started instructing or started helping, you know, giving people rides and stuff that, that first weekend. And then the next year, I started doing that. And they started coming up with different things, like they're, they're going to have a teen school. And they started coming up with these different things. And I kept doing it for free, you know, because it was something I just enjoyed doing. And then when they hired Tony Kester, I think four or five years later, I think Tony's been here 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. And so that he got here like five years into the, into the program. So I went up to him, immediately went up to him, introduced myself, said, I, I've been instructing out here, and I'd like to keep doing that. He goes, yeah, great. You know, so the rest is history. <laughs> so I've been doing it now for 15 years. 15 yeah. years, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. And now they pay me, which is even better. <laughs> First five years I was doing it. For, doing it. But, of course, uh, back then the, there wasn't really the, the organization. You know, they were still kind of, you know, like, like right now there were, we've got all these different things we do. Um, different, you know, the driving schools and performance driving and teen schools, all that stuff. I mean, they were kind of working on all that stuff back then. And now it's, you know, it's it's set. And so um, um, it's good. I, I enjoy it. How often through the season, how often are you, are you out here? I'm out here probably two or three times during the, during the week in the summer, sometimes four times. And um, what do you... Uh, what do you what do you enjoy teaching the most? Do you have something that you like teaching most? Is it Ladies' Day you enjoy teaching more than? Ladies' Day is fun, just because simply because uh, you know the ladies a lot of times, and, and I've seen this happen two or three times. Your wife's one of the exceptions. That there's a couple of them that are you know that take to this really well. They're really good at it and they enjoy it. But there's a lot of them say, "Oh, I don't I don't drive like that. I don't want to. I can't I can't drive that fast." And usually the ones that say that are the ones that end up kicking butt, you know, <laughs> uh, which just happened last Ladies' Day. We had one, the one woman here said, I can't do that, I can't do that. And she was one of the faster ones on the autocross course. Once we once we convinced her that she could she could, actually she could do, it, do right? it, right? Yeah, so I think my favorite, though, is probably the Autobot experiences because I get to do the classrooms, which I enjoy doing. Um, I've got a good routine. I, I, enjoyed it. I, enjoy, I enjoy that that banter back and forth. And um, they're... they're they're nice. It's a nice day. You know, we do we do autocross, we do on track lead follow, and then of course at the end we get to we get to um, give hot laps. Mm-hmm. So we get to drive the cars. And see, as an instructor, I get to do stuff that normal um, members don't get to do. You can drive you can drive the cars, but you're doing it on touring laps. You know. So you're driving the fleet cars. Yes. It's a, yeah, you're taking the fleet cars out for the experience. Right. So that's cool. Right. Fast. Yeah, yeah nice. I mean, not just nice. not 50, 60 miles an hour. We're, nice. we're able to haul ass. Did you do the um, Audi stuff too? I did. I did. I worked with Audi for the couple of years they were here. I did that too, yeah. I thought that was a great program. Was it was a good program. And we, we were told um, that first year, which I think made them sign up the second year, we had like a, like a 20-something percent uh, sales rate. I mean, like 20% of the guys that came in there bought, ended up buying Audis, you know. I mean, that- I mean, to me, that's incredible. I, I had an I had an A8 at the time. I was way into Audis. I still am, but I mean, I, I loved that A8, and you know, so I loved doing it. I thought it was a fantastic program, and it was free. It was good. It was free. Yeah, we we enjoyed it. We had a good time, and it was fun because you know we got to drive the Audis and we got to show people what what the cars could do, and they are good cars. I mean, oh, we had, fantastic, we had fun. And um, and uh, the, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure what the deal was. Why they decide to stop doing it uh, because we had a really good we they told us man you know we're selling for every 10 people that come through here one of them's buying a car you know i know that, that's what i'd heard i'd heard the success rate of it was phenomenal yeah so yeah i'd love so, to see that i mean just 
for me, I'd love to see that go on. It was a fun. I I drove the and I fell in love. And someday I'll have that RS7. Did you go through this thing here? Yeah, was, I did. Was the, I working there at that time? I think you were. Yeah. Okay. I think you might. We actually. I think we went out together. Okay. Because I went with you and Brian Lyft. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me and Brian. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was the first. They had the, the R8, mm-hmm. and the that RS7. RS7. The RS7. That red one. Yes. That was a nice car. I liked it better than the supercar. Yeah, it was. Nice I mean, car. it was so impressive. Oh my goodness gracious! Yeah, yeah it was impressive. Yeah, car. when I got this car that I got now, I went and, and and drove. I just needed RS7. Only has two seats in the back. You know, it's not a bench seat in the back, so it's only a four-person car. So that was one of my limitations on not getting that car. But I love the RS7. Yeah, it's one of my it favorite. Nice, it was a nice car. It's one of I my favorite, it. favorite cars. Considering how big it was, it, it was fast. Oh, my gosh. It, was, it, it felt good you know, on the track. It just it was yeah. a nice car. Liked it. Liked it a lot. And, I, and, again, I was kind of disappointed when Audi quit doing that because we thought we were doing good. We had a, It was a successful thing, and, you know, they, they sold some cars. And, and I kept telling them you know, when they came out with the, with the, uh, the, race, the racing version of the RS5, um, so you need to bring one of those here. We'll we'll sell one. If you bring one of those here, we'll sell one. And then, of course they did. And I think two or three people bought one, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So, so what do you do um, in the uh, in the off season here? Do you do so from just kind of hang out? Just or? yeah. Just I'm reti- I I work part time for AutoZone. Oh. I deliver parts. Okay. Just it's a nice, easy, carefree job. And I know a bunch. of, I know all the uh, the good. Uh, Maintenance maintenance shops in town. <laughs> I bet you do. In fact, I've got I a, bet you do. I've got a '63 Corvette um, split window coupe, and the carburetor's Ooh. leaking. Yeah, the carbs leaking on, started leaking, and there's a guy in in uh, in uh, New Lenox that specializes in just um, muscle cars, and so me and him got to be friends. So he says, "Oh yeah, bring that carburetor in. I'll rebuild it for you." You know, so so over the winter now that I parked it for the winter, I'll uh, I'll pull the carb off and bring it over there. So I met some good people and get some. Get some discounts at AutoZone. I get twenty percent off anything I buy. So it's all, it's all, it's a good thing. So what what Porsche did you have? Do you still have the Porsche? I still have it. It's a nine eleven R. It's nine eleven SC eighty one. It's for, I'm probably going to sell it because it's. I don't know. I, I tracked it for a long time. I bought it to track it. So what I did was I got. Um, uh, when I got serious about it, I um, I started getting weight off it. You know, the back then the, they had those uh, gas powered. But the gas bumpers, you know, the five right, mile right, hour bumpers, right, yep, yep. they're heavy. They weighed like forty pounds each. Really? Oh yeah, they're heavier than hell. So I got took both those <clears> off, <throat> took all the sound deadening material out of the back seat, and there's I got, I got almost two hundred pounds out of the car. Jeez. Yeah, and so um, I had I put I got plastic front and rear bumpers, and so they were white. The car was dark green, and it might look like hell. So I a buddy of mine has a shop in Lockport, and I brought it in there. He says, you know, paint this for me. He goes, what color? He said, ah, just paint it white. I'll, I'm going to put decals and stuff on it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And kind of need to just throw some paint on there. And so as we were walking out, um, I went through the, by the spray booth, and he was he was painting a 67 Chevy, and it, it was primer, black primer, you know, that black primer. Uh-huh. And I thought, wait a minute. That's it. That's it. Painted that primer. And so I brought it in here. It's still black primer. And, and now this was 20 years ago. This is before... Not 20 years, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. This is before um, the, you know, that that paint is popular now, you know, dull, the dull paint right, jobs right, or semi-gloss, right. whatever you want to call it. So I brought my Porsche in here, and it's like there's several other guys that painted their cars the same way afterwards. Oh, yeah? But, yeah, in fact, uh, 
the Miata, uh, Mark's Miata. Yeah, Mark's Miata, yeah. Mark Bassett's yeah. Miata. Yeah. So, yeah. so I started that trend. I was here first with that. So, and my car's still that color. So now I put I put the headlights back on it, and uh, now it's street legal. I can drive it in the street. I didn't have plates for it, you know, before it wasn't street legal. Before now it is. So we have an '83 SC Targa. Do you? Yes, Heidi, my wife Heidi and I's first date. Really? We took it over to Mike Benet's shop in Peoria. Um, Calvin Mayer that he runs. Mike Benet's a member here. Yeah. And I needed somebody to pick it up, and she's the only person I knew who could drive a stick. <laughs> so that ended up being our first date. Nice. Yes, I've, I've told this story many times in the podcast. That ended up being our first date. Nice. And I sold the car soon after that, before we got married, and 15 years later, I bought it back. Did you? Same car? Same car. Nice. Same exact car. Nice. And my kids call it the date car. Yeah. And that's one of the cars that um, um, I think we'll probably always have. She's got... Lots of cars, but yeah, um, I think that's one I think that I could, you know, I really like that car. It's a, yeah. it's a great driving car. My gosh, it's like driving a go kart. It's yeah. just it's fun. I like mine too. But you know, I, I at this point, I've got I got too many cars I want to sell. In fact, I've got a '69 Roadrunner that I just put up for uh, oh wow, put in uh, consignment at this this place in Joliet here. This uh, the old Toyota uh, Thomas Toyota on Larkin Avenue. There, he's got my. He's got my Roadrunner in the showroom now, so I'm trying to sell that. I've got a 66 GTO. I I probably will get rid of that. I've got the 81 Porsche. I've got a 79 240Z Datsun, but oh, I bought that brand new. Those are going through the roof. Right? That's oh, my... you bought a brand new. I'm the original owner, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I bought that. I wanted a Corvette, so I was in the Air Force making, what, $120 a month or whatever the hell it was back then. And I wanted to buy a Corvette, and Corvettes were way out of my league. Corvettes were like $6,000 back then. That's you know, crazy, and so the stats was four grand, and um, a buddy of mine had a, tri- a TR6 Triumph, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I like those too. But the, he had a lot of trouble with it, electrical. He had a lot of electrical. So, so I, I, I the 240Z was just a cool looking car. And see, back then Japanese cars were not known for, you know, Jap- Japan was not known for quality back then. There was no, you know, the, most of the stuff was considered like China today is kind of like garbage, right? Right. And so when I bought one, I got a lot of flack from my Air Force American. You know, <laughs> what are you buying that for? You know, it's a piece of crap, you know. And so I hung on to it, and um, I still have it. I've, it's, it's been rebuilt. That's awesome. It's been restored, and uh, you know, it's worth. I don't know. It's worth like twenty grand now. Yeah, a lot more than you paid for it. Yeah. Well, I got about. I probably got about fifteen in it because after when I restored it, repainted it, and stuff, I probably got about fifteen in it. But yeah, I could sell it. What now. was it? What did it sell for new? It was forty two hundred bucks. Forty two hundred bucks, huh? Yeah. And a Corvette was six sixty two. Sixty five. Sixty five. Something like that, yeah. Interesting. And it was you know, it for the for the it was a six cylinder straight six, hundred and fifty horsepower, but it it only weighs twenty three hundred pounds. So it was pretty quick. You know, I could st- I could hang with a Corvette up until about third gear or so and then they'd run off and leave me at that point. But it was fun. In fact, I chased a guy, it's funny, when I was up at Wordsmith, the the Thunderbirds were up at Alpina. There was an air Alpena, show up there, Michigan, yeah. and the Thunderbirds were—they were flying T-38s back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of the captains on uh, one of the other crews had a had a Porsche 911, and me, me and him chased each other all the way up up to Alpine <laughs> on on, uh, on what, route, route 23, I think that was, and uh, with my dots and him with his Porsche, and it was pretty—it was a lot of fun. So I liked it, and I, I wouldn't sell it. I probably would keep that. I'd keep my split window coupe. Yeah, I don't want to sell that. Yeah, and I've got a Z06 Corvette. That I, well, it's parked now, but um, I'll probably keep that. But I, everything else is for sale. I got a BMW, I got a truck, I got a 
Miata. I sold my <laughs> I sold my Miata. I had a, a, a spec Miata that I raced out here for years and years and years. And then uh, once I started doing full time instructing, pretty much, I didn't race anymore. Then they changed the rules. You had to put an exhaust header on, and it was going to yeah. cost me like two grand to keep it, you know, where I could mm-hmm. race it. So it just collected dust. So I, I sold it to Art Zismer. Mm-hmm. You know, Art. Actually, I traded it. He had a he had a uh, convertible. 2000 convertible Miata so I just swapped I took his car he took my car and he uh, he um, fixed it up and resold it and so anyway I got to drive it the other day I got to drive my race car the other day which is fine <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm the only person I'm the only member I think that's flipped the car over out here did you know that oh yeah well so what so what car well, this was is it? In, well I was qualifying for a race and I did I made Miata the, yeah like race. Miata? Uh, this is probably what 2000 10 maybe 2008 it's been a while ago anyway um i did the, i i did the cardinal i broke a cardinal rule i changed two things at once right i was i was really um my my timing i mean i was really consistent but i i you know i i wanted to shave some time off so i went into turn five a little hotter braked a little later south track. yeah and so i went off and you don't know that unless you go up, but the, it, there is kind of a little angle there, and so I couldn't and couldn't get back on, you know. And there was a guardrail over there on the inside. It's gone now, but there used to be a guardrail over there. You know where the you know where the corner station is yeah. on six is across the way. The corner station was originally over there, oh. and then they moved it to. But the guardrail was there, and um, when they had motorcycles out here, they put hay bales out there, because the, they had they had tires in front of the guardrail, so they put hay bales because the motorcycle guys were always hitting those. And so anyway, it was wet, and when I went off, I thought, oh, I'm going to hit it. So I just kind of hung on. And so when I hit the hay bales, it made, it made like a ramp. It kind of launched me. Jeez. So I went up over the, on top of the guardrail and flipped over. And it was like, holy crap, I couldn't, you know, it's just like bam, bam, bam. I'm upside down, like holy. So I'm looking for the door handle. Of course, it's not where it's supposed to be because I'm upside down. That's <laughs> right, sure. And I'm seeing smoke. I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. So anyway, I got out. It took me roughly 20 seconds to get out. It felt like twenty minutes, so you know. And it, and it felt like you were climbing from the back of a B fifty two. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was used to climbing through small, so but of course I was a lot younger and a lot skinnier then too, you know. So anyway, I got out, and by the time the the, the safety guys sit over there, um, there's an opening on on South, um, I guess it's South Seven where the kink is. There's an opening mm-hmm. over there. They sit over there, so they they got to me. By the time I got out of the car, they were there, and so. Um, I was a little shooken up, but I was okay. I mean, nothing. And the smoke I was seeing was from the radiator. When I split split the radiator, so it was steam. Basically, I was seeing. Oh, okay. So uh, they flipped the car back over, and and uh, you finished qualifying. No, well, <laughs> no, actually, the funny story though. Uh, uh, Mike Bernati, um, you know, everybody came over, and you know, they say, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" Because they red flagged everything, and you know, because uh-huh. and so uh, you know, my car was kind of messed up, obviously, and. And Mike Bernani came up to me. He goes, "What did you still want to race today?" I said, "I said, yeah. You know, you know what I did, right?" He goes, "Yeah. What's the chance of you doing that twice in one day?" So True. He, so he let me. He let me use one of his cars. Oh, wow! And so I got right back on the track. I had to. I had to start last, but I. I got right back out there and you know and raced. I didn't do very good, but still, it was. It, so that was a pretty cool thing. That's that was, and that's one of the things I liked about this place is the, the people, the camaraderie, the you know. Uh, Henry Vizioso, I think, gave me a radiator. Somebody else gave me uh, uh, motor mounts, and I think it cost me forty-five bucks. And I was and I was back on track the next weekend. 
you know. That's awesome. So it's it's pretty neat. Yeah. So that's one of the things I liked about this place was the, you know, the brotherhood kind of thing going on here, which is kind of neat. I met some really good people here. I've made some good friends here. That's 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 the cool thing about this whole place. So. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. What an well, interesting story! Me. My gosh, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I, I had no uh, idea. I. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've been here since day one, you know, and so it's it's interesting to see the place grow as it's grown and the membership grow and just a difference, you know, different faces and stuff. There's still some old timers here, but a lot of new faces, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of neat. It's just kind of neat to see the, see the place progress like it's done, all the changes that have been made. You know, this building wasn't here and, you know, it's just, it's been pretty cool. I'm glad I, I'm glad I stuck my neck out. I didn't consider it being, being a big um, gamble because mm-hmm. I really felt, felt that it was going to go through. But, you know, all of us had joined early on. I mean, we were, we were you know, we were, we were guessing, we were hoping that everything was going to turn out the way they said it was going to, and right. it pretty much did, so it was good. It was the uh, best ten grand I ever spent. <laughs> Back then, that's all it was, right? Yeah. Now, now it's a little bit more expensive. It's a little bit more now, yeah. yeah. So I'm good. glad I joined when I did. Yeah. You know, because it's... Wait, how long you been in? Um, I, we just finished our third year. Third year, I think it's, yeah. I think it's our th- end of our third year. Yeah, that's good. It's good. So. Good. Yeah, it's always good to see new people come in. There's a bunch of new faces, and you know, it's like I, I. It's funny because you know, back when when we first started racing Miatas, I think there was a dozen of us that first year, maybe fourteen or so that had them. And then it was twenty something. That was thirty something. And now I think there's like eighty or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we, I think it was third. Uh, one of the first races. I think we counted thirty two cars. Yeah. In the field. Yeah. The last race I was in. One of the last races. It was. Uh, it was in October. You know, four or five years ago. Full track. I think there was one second separated ten cars. You think yeah. about that. You the know. Competition is pretty incredible. Yeah. 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 So, my so son. I'm, We'll be inspecting me out as next year. I, I, that's the plan. Nice. Right? So nice, we'll, nice, nice. Get the young kids in there. Um, it was fun. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of bumping and grinding. You know, a lot of us learned a lot, you know, because we, none of us were, that started doing that were professional racers of any kind. I mean, we all had several years out here screwing around, but that was a re- learning experience for all of us. I mean, we all did a lot of, there was a lot of scraping and bumping going on initially, and, but we all got good at it, you know, and so... By the time I quit driving, um, you know, I was pretty comfortable with, with being in the race. You know, it's, it's a whole different experience when you're going in that first turn with 30 other cars. <laughs> you know? I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.